Hello everybody and welcome to Volume 2, Issue 54 of the Cana Rinse Podcast. Hurry, before Miserabelle uses her powers of illusion to make herself look like Minnie, and make Minnie look evil like her. Joining me this week, we have Tony Atkins. Very good. Darren Gargett. <laughs> uh, hello. <laughs> and special guest, Mr. Dan Clark. Generic Donald Duck impression. <laughs> also known as uh, Clarkanoid and or Mealtime Strategy off Twitter. Too many names. I think Too I could do names. a Donald Duck impression, but it would send these people eardrums piercing and wouldn't be very good. Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my name's Leon Cox. Uh, Dan is sort of filling in for Darren Foreman, who was supposed to be on this show, but um, due to a successful weekend, he's nursing some sore down t- downstairs parts. Uh, so we have Dan Clark, who is off of the AI Bots podcast. Uh, you can find that at the AIbots.libsyn.com um, or on iTunes, I believe. Yeah, you can. As of um, the next few days, hopefully week. I don't know when this show's going to be going up, but you can find it at the AIbots.com as well. So, yeah. Oh, brilliant. Okay, and it's a it's a mixture of gaming chat and the odd uh, sketch, little skits and things like yeah, that. Comedy sketches, and um, we we don't intend to be a retro show, but um, we're old buggers, so we end up often slipping into <laughs> retro <laughs> topics. So. You and Chazzy, yep. yes. So, Illusion, then, um, it crossed my mind that we, while researching the show, and this is where Dan became involved as a, a massive Sega head, um, I realised I should have involved him a long time ago, but he's done a, a, a great deal of research for us in the last 24 hours, and I've done a great deal myself. Um, it struck me that maybe we should have done an Illusion trilogy show, because there are actually three Illusion games, whereas we've gone instead for the three Mega Drive titles by the same team instead, so... Um, the history is that uh, there was, is it, it's Land of Illusion isn't it, on the Master System it's and Land, uh, well there's Castle, Land and Legend, so there's actually a trilogy on the Master Legend. System as well, yeah Okay, I'd forgotten about Legend um, and that came later, after after Land Yep. Now, uh, Master System also had its analogue of Quackshot, which was the Lucky Dime Caper um, which is, a, again, a separate adventure. But um, we're focusing on the three games, Castle of Illusion, Quackshot, and World of Illusion. Um, we've discovered... Now, Sega were very Byzantine about their development uh, back mm. in those days. Um, we can't get sales figures for these games because they never used to release stuff like that either. Um, nearly all the credits, although the game games did have credit sequences at the end... Um, It's not like nowadays where every game has a credits option that you can just click on at the start. Um, This was uh, this was at the end, and most of the names were pseudonyms. It's bizarre, isn't it? Because you you look at the credits for all three games, and you realise they're the same set of people, but often completely different names used in every case. Yeah. So we reckon these games were well. We know these games were made by. the team known as then as mostly as Sega AM7. Um, well, I can't remember what AM stands for. Was it, was it amusement? Yeah, I'm thinking it was amusement something. Yeah, 
Um, they became later Sega Wow, and uh, later after that, Overworks. Um, and they also seem to have done some work under the AM1 moniker, some arcade machines. So the short version is the people behind these uh, Mickey and Donald games were also responsible for the likes of Golden Axe, Alex Kidd, Fantasy Star, Shinobi, Streets of Rage, House of the Dead, and Skies of Arcadia, and even as recently as Valkyria Chronicles. These are some of the same people. Um, key personnel at uh, AM7 included Yuji Naka. Now, we've managed to establish that he left in 1991, so he may have done some work on Cast of Illusion, but he probably left before Quackshot. That seems to make uh, sense to me, from looking at the timings and... And what have you certain seen. elements of the game as well uh there's there's a lot of um sort of platforming configurations and certain sort of enemy sprites and things that look very much like sonic one it's just all at about a quarter of the speed the underwater levels remind me a bit of sonic as well yeah very mm-hmm. much so there's those red fish that pop up under the bridges and stuff like and, that and as the well. uh, the tidal wave coming towards you where you have Absolutely. to sort of jump on the platforms that's kind of using sonic yeah too. yeah very much so um um, I don't. We haven't actually managed to establish if Reiko Kodama, uh, one of the few sort of high-profile women in Japanese development, had much to do with these games. But she was certainly a key figure at in this department. Uh, she's the 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 woman mainly behind uh, Skies of Arcadia and Valkyria Chronicles. At this time, she would have been working on I think Fantasy Star two and three. So I'm guessing she might not have had a great hand in the Disney games, but. But again, part of the same team, so yeah. So we find we we've definitely established that uh, games were designed and directed by a Yoshi Yoshida, known as Emirin, at, in the, mm. at the start of all the credits. Don't know what what that relates to his his actual name. And uh, the art designer is uh, Takashi Yuda, cr- accredited as Thomas Yuda with two U's. I've I've always wondered if Emirin is something to do with Emlyn. Like Emlyn Hughes, like maybe he always had the answer on the tip of his tongue or <laughs> something like that. But um, yeah, it's the sort of Japanese corruption of Emlyn, isn't it? So it could be. Perhaps they were huge fans of Questions <laughs> with David Coleman. <laughs> and the music uh, credited in all three games, I think, as as being by Kamiya Studio. But it seems that the the main musician on all three games was to- uh, Tokihiko Uwabo, known as Bo. Yeah, and he's done loads of the classic Sega tracks over the years. If you look at his uh, yeah. his CV, it's like, oh yeah, that one, that one, that one. They're all sort of classic. He's, he's, he's kind of like their Koji Kondo type figure, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, Pretty, a little that he's way. He's up, yeah. up there, yeah, um, outside of, um, you know, uh, Yuzo Koshiro, uh, who also, and this is a rabbit hole we went down today, <laughs> wasn't it? The relationship between AM7 and the team at Ancient, who were Yuzo Koshiro's uh, sort of family company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, his mum and his sister involved there. <laughs> yeah, uh, but they worked on Shinobi and uh, various Sega in-house pro- products, um, but then went on, they pretty much made the Streets of Rage 2 and 3 games, and um, but then they started making, they also were making stuff for, on the SNES, weren't they, and ActRaiser and stuff like that, so... Who knows how the contract broke down and went down. It's a fantastic lineage of games, though, behind that. That's the thing, yeah. That's that's what I think we wanted, why we wanted to do all this research and stress that. It's not just like, oh, these, you know, these funny little Mickey Mouse games that Sega mm. bashed out with some third-rate, third-party team. These were, these were like key Sega personnel from their heyday. It's so frustrating, though, that, you know, we ha- you have to do the, ser- the searching there and... 
you know, work through the pseudonyms and bits like that because mm. well, we live in an age now where the credits are some of them have seemed like about an hour long. Everybody gets involved and everyone gets a mention. So to see all the pseudonyms come up every time every time I got to the end credits over the, the forthcoming or the last week, I was like, oh, like who who were these people? Yeah. So Well I suppose in the same way yes. that the games have got easier, the meta game of finding out who made them's also got easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, you were you pointed me towards sites such as um Sega sixteen and um SegaRetro.org is very good. Sega Retro. But again, there's yeah. no tying up of the pseudonyms. Like there's there's so much work to be done there, but mm. God, it's going to Yeah, there's a lot of cross referencing. Yeah, it's fa- it's fascinating stuff if you're you know into this stuff as you we are. Thought, and you would have thought they'd been as proud though to actually start putting this stuff. Yeah, although you know, I understand at the time how game development is very different, but now you'd think they would want to put this stuff in their CV and actually bring it to the you know the forefront of. Everybody, oh yes, I was involved. I was the producer. This was, yeah, definitely. This was only a few years after uh, employees at both Atari, Coinop, uh, and Williams as well got in trouble for slipping their their initials mm. into the code of games. Um, and uh, it was Activision who started the movement with their home cartridges towards putting the producer on the box. You'd have a picture of David Crane or Carol Shaw on the front of the of the cart saying, look, this game is by this person. You know, you should appreciate them. And, and you know, that's what, what we're into nowadays. But I think back then, big corporations like Sega were, were so keen to present themselves as an, an entity not mm-hmm. as a bunch of individuals for for whatever reason. And also in in the home computer scene, you know, this was the point where um, Renegade Software set up this, you know, this uh, label, the King Music label, set up the Renegade label, where again they were saying, right, we're going to promote our development stars, Sensible Soccer, Bitmap Brothers, whoever it is, mm-hmm. and and put them on the front of the box. Also, the era of uh, Populous, and we all knew that was Peter Molyneux at the time, so. It was yeah. the time when this was all coming about. But um, there's yeah. there's political reasons, I think, why Sega often didn't name who worked on games. Um, I don't know if you remember that Nintendo put in uh, contracts where certain developers couldn't work for Sega. They had to be solely working for Nintendo. Um, so not necessarily yeah. with AM7, it obviously doesn't work. But when they used third-party companies, often that's why you won't see names or any accreditation at all. It's because these people wanted to work for Sega and had to do it kind of on the hush-hush. So there are funny little reasons why. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it may be something to do with, you know, the way a lot of, I I don't know if, you know, this was indicative of the way that a lot of uh, business in the Far East was was done back in those days. But uh, whatever, it certainly, you know, as much as we want to give these people credit now, it certainly makes for an interesting sort of, yeah, like you said, a metagame or a puzzle trying to actually decode all this stuff. See, I've, I've gone months without looking at any of this, and then last night you threw me back into it, and I was so voracious for it, just because I find it so fascinating. Yeah. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll do each title uh, individually. So first, our personal history uh, with Castle of Illusion. Dan? Uh, now, with myself, there was another kid at school who had a Japanese Mega Drive, uh, strangely nice. also with the initials Dan C. Um, so what we used to do was, so we didn't double up on games, because they were quite expensive then. They we were. used to arrange who was going to buy which, and Castle of Illusion was one of the ones that he ended up with. So I only ever played this on a borrow, but um, yeah, managed. How old were you? Uh, I would have been. This would be like first or second year senior school, so I would have been like twelve, thirteen, I think. Importing at twelve. Now there we go. That's dedication. <laughs> well, if you had a Japanese Mega Drive, you didn't really have any choice. <laughs> yeah, or import- you just had like me. You had a Hacksword uh, Mega Drive, which played import carts, albeit at PAL speeds, which is a conversation we'll have later. <laughs> See, I had to do it the other way around. I had to um, take out the B 
bit of the Japanese console that stopped you playing PAL games when they were That was a though. much better way of doing things, <laughs> uh, as I later discovered when I started to understand about borders and 16.7% speed reduction. Uh, so you played it through, completed it back in the day, presumably? Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I completed it, because I can remember the ending sequence fairly vividly. But um, mm. looking at it now, there's some bits that are... Like really tough platforming. I know a lot of it's quite pedestrian. Yeah, the last level is is relatively mm. tough. Um, one of our, our well, our only forum correspondent for this uh, this show later talks about how Illusion had a reputation for being a hard game, which I didn't know about. I was a bit older when it came out, but uh, we'll also come on to that. Uh, Darren, your history. Castle of Illusion. It's one of these games I've been sort of on and off thinking about since you know since I was a kid I think I was about eight when it came out so my older brother had a Mega Drive and as you do you get to know your neighbours and they've all got Mega Drives so you swap games and I remember seeing this and thinking it was just pure magic on the screen and I hadn't really seen it since and then when I saw that you know it was up for discussion on Kane and Rinse I was uh, more than happy to jump at a chance to play it again. Interesting be interesting to hear your Mm. your contrast compare and contrast and Mm. Tony? Well, if we're talking 91, I mean, I'm only 11 at this point, so my my memory of how and when and where is, you know, it, I had a Mega Drive and I played this game. Mm. Wherever I played it upon release, I doubt very much. And no, I picked it up and, uh, would have been f- probably 49.99 in, in the shops yeah. uh, in uh, the uh, for Christmas 1990. So, yeah, there's there no about. point trying to, to hit a specific date anywhere, but, I'd, you know, I played it probably a couple of years after that as, as and when it went into the bin because it's fantastic cover art I would, I would say for all, all the games and it was one of those things like I think I remember seeing it quite a bit up on the shelves um, so I picked it up at some point probably I'd imagine time I was 12 or 13 a couple of years after release and I've just played it again to, for this this week to, for the show so yes full disclosure, disclosure I haven't been back and played any of them but I did play them all to completion uh and for one and three many times over back in the back in the what, day. What is weird though when you go back and, and play games like that? It's certainly if it's been that long. So say it's been you know, ten, twelve, or how many years? Um, like you, you remember snippets? Like I, I remember the the beginning, I, and I do actually remember sections towards the end. Hmm. But it's big chunks in the middle. I don't have any recollection of the tools. So. Well, I, I watched them back through all t- today, back to back, and uh, as part of the many hours of research I did for this show, and um, there were a few bits that I'd forgotten, but generally I'd played so much of Castle and uh, World of Illusion that I, I did remember. It, it. I reckon it was probably relatively recently that I played them through last, probably about 1997, something like that, so... <laughs> Only 15 years ago, but I do have, yeah. <laughs> as as probably people will testify, I do have quite a ridiculous memory for games. So, um, yeah, I I was obviously much older when this came out. I think I got my Mega Drive in late 91, so this was already doing the rounds for cheaper. I remember buying a Japanese copy, which ran, albeit slowly, on my PAL Mega Drive. Um, probably trading that in at some point and then buying a copy in a PAL box, possibly a Genesis version as well. I kept buying it and trading it and <laughs> buying it and playing it again. Um, I think that's true of all ga- all the games in this series, actually. Uh, and even though I was, yeah, so I was 18, 19 when I first played this, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't particularly mature person. I'm still not. So it certainly, I, you know, I... I don't know if I could have loved it any more if I'd been eight years old. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, in fact, it was, you know, in some ways it was it was even better because it actually, you're at that point 
that sort of late teen stage where you're starting to really feel the pain of not being a child anymore and this actually you know helped to drag me right back into the feeling of being a child and watching Christmassy cartoons on the telly and not having a care in the world sort of thing so it has got quite a Christmassy feel to it hasn't it they are, yeah I think the, I think the, the illusion ones definitely have yeah Less so quack shot, although it does have an, that North Pole, uh, the South Pole level with Northern Lights Santa in it. Santa costumes, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> the original game, Castle of Illusion, is called I Love Mickey Mouse, Great Mysterious Castle Adventure. That's his real name. We know it as Castle of Illusion starring Mickey Mouse. <laughs> uh, there was a game by the same name on the Master System, but it was sort of remixed with different mechanics, different levels, some of the same music, albeit... Not in a not using that wonderful Mega Drive FM sound chip. This is probably where my memory's playing up with me because I I remember things about this game that I when I replayed it I they were like well where are the bits that I'm remembering where have they gone so maybe I've <laughs> I've also seen the the Master System version and sort of spliced them together in my memory over the you know the last sort of decade and a half or whatever. Some people some people swear by the Master System version being a better game the same way that you, you hear this a lot about Sonic the Sonics 1 and 2 as well like fans of the Master System game over the Mega Drive game saying that the Mega Drive game was you know may have been better in terms of audio visuals but the Master System games were actually more fun to play. I don't I didn't I never had a Master System so I couldn't say. Oh, I wouldn't say that for the Sonic games. <laughs> yeah, I disagree on Sonic, but with the yeah, Master yeah. System um although the Mega Drive one does look fantastic and is really close to the Disney designs. I think the Master System one, for for it being such a low-powered system, is working a lot harder. It's kind of punching above its weight with yeah, these Yeah, definitely. Games. I'd say they're better yeah. games, but hey, that's just me. It, they seem to have slightly more interesting mechanics and puzzles. Mm. I think to cover for the fact that you haven't got all the, the glitzy shine. The, the sequel to Castle or well, I love Mickey Mouse. What well, on the Mars system we mentioned it earlier? This is Magical Crystal, or uh, in in Japan, or, or Land of Illusion. Um, ninety. This was ninety two on the Mars system and ninety three on the Game Gear. Obviously, they shared a lot of games because the technology within them was, was almost identical. Yeah. Um, by uh, Aspect Company, Aspect Co. of Japan, who made a lot of the Mars system and Game Gear Sonic games. One of many teams who worked almost anonymously for Sega doing quite important work for them. <laughs> Yet more rabbit holes. <laughs> more rabbit holes. Um, but interestingly, as a reference back to other Kane and Rince, uh, the Aspect Co. are still going, and in fact they are the team who converted the MSX Metal Gear 1 and 2 for the subsistence uh, compilation, wow. <laughs> which we covered uh, obviously in the HD format, and although it was Bluepoint who converted that into HD, mm. it still would have been Aspect's code in there for that. So there you go. Cast of Illusion then. I went through the plot at the start. This is a game that you can speedrun in about 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> nobody balked at this at the time. Uh, I don't remember anyone saying this game was ridiculously short, even though in 1990, imagine how much money 45, 50 quid was to, to spend on a game. Two pounds a minute. Yeah. <laughs> and... And you think about now, people, you know, balk at paying more than 69p for a game in some cases. Mm. Now, 69p is considerably, you know, less money. Uh, £45 back in 1990 was a shitload of money. I mean, I would say I wasn't speedrunning it in 20 minutes. That's for sure. No. I mean, I I didn't speedrun it in 20 minutes going back to the game now. It still took a couple of hours for me to kind of... Yeah, I was wondering what a sensible playtime would be be um i would imagine i could probably do it because i remember it quite well and i played it so many times in maybe an hour and hour and change but yeah it sounds about right 
Yeah. Yeah, forty five minutes to an hour, I reckon. But even that, even that like as a as an average time to play a Mega Drive game just sort of blew my mind when I played this again recently. It's like, does that really just take me an hour? Because when I was a kid, like, yeah. it seemed to last me forever. Or the fact you know, the the fact that I didn't sit there and play it for an hour straight probably meant that I turned the machine off and started again from the beginning, therefore extending the, the playtime. I think that's a big part of it. I, I don't know, it still took it still took me about an hour and a half to, to two hours, I think, this time. Because to to me actually I think going back to it now, I mean it's not a a, a massively tough game. But it's a little bit of a sheep, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing because it starts off really simple. The first mm. level is, you know, it's very hard to it almost play. Almost plays itself. Um, yeah, exactly. In, in fact, um, you know, if you if you want to, they've got something called the practice mode at the very start of the game. Yeah. Um, which it's really bizarre because you'd think it. I mean, it comes up as the levels. Uh, it comes up as the difficulty. So you think practice normal and hard. So you think well, maybe practice is just a cakewalk through the game, mm. and it's not. It's not that at all. It's um. It's. I believe it's. It's like a section of each level in the game. I think it's probably three three levels they give you, mm. um, and you do that, and it's almost like a a, a cross slice of the entire game, in and it takes about hmm, fifteen to twenty minutes. And it's just two or three levels, um, all spliced together from each each one each of the stages, and then you even get a, a separate end credits, and then she, they basically say, "Oh, now we need to go up to normal." I'd completely forgotten about that. For, uh, there was an interview with uh, Jim Huetha, I think you pronounce it, uh, of Sega of America, who was senior producer on this game, some kind of overseer, anyway. Of sorts. From... <laughs> he reckons he invented the Dreamcast as well. So. Yeah, there's 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 a pinch of salt to be taken, but um, he he says that he's uh, he's very he, he's credited in the game as Jim Highmaster, and he says I'm very proud of that game. Yes, when we released it, I knew we had a winner. Disney, Sega Japan, and I worked very closely on this game. And he says I am personally very proud of the intro or easy level, which is the thing you've just been talking about, I believe. Mm. That was my idea, <laughs> so that parents could play with their very young children, and both would be able to play the game and get some rewards very easily. He then goes on to claim he invented Mickey Mouse as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. A bit that like was that. my character, that was. It, yeah, the practice mode is quite an interesting idea, because it would make sense for a demo unit in a shop to have that, and you put it on practice mm. mode. If someone plays through 15, you know, they stand there for 10, 15 minutes and play through a, a sort of a, a chunk of the game, and then they, in theory, rent or buy the game. But, um, yeah, I just, it totally blew. I was like, what? I completed the game and I went back to the main menu. I was like, practice mode. Well, why would you want to practice a game that you've already bought? Like, it, it really <laughs> didn't make any sense to me. And it's kind of like a, maybe like the Genesis, really, you know, it's the Genesis of like a Nintendo's, you know, when you fail on Mario a certain amount of times recently, it then plays through the game for you. Yeah. It, mm. I, it could sort of be like a sort of, um, like the seed of that idea, you know, like just helping people out who struggle with games, give them a smaller, easier chunk to play to get used to and then, delve into the full thing. Although the game has its challenging aspects, especially on the last level, uh, it was obviously designed to be accessible for a younger audience, certainly mm. the first few levels anyway, and, and although you know, I was w way too old to be playing it then, uh, in in that sense, um, it was very, you know, it was very gentle, it's very slow-paced, it's Mickey Mouse, for goodness sake, you know, the, <laughs> the, one of the things about this for me is that I was never a fan of these Disney characters, like, I, I, I'm a real admiration for some of Disney's feature animations, you know, whether it be Bambi or Snow White or Fantasia, um, even more recently, Aladdin, The Lion King, but their, their, their shorter cartoons featuring these characters, I, I was never that into them, I always thought the characters were shit, the scripts were shit, Mickey and Donald are annoying, you know, <laughs> compared to Warner Brothers cartoons, which were very much made with an adult audience in mind. They were witty, sassy, sharp, brilliant, clever. Disney stuff was really fucking sort of anodyne and bland. But 
what they did do well, they did have some extraordinary artists. And the good thing about these games was that they, they gave you the chance to interact in those beautiful worlds without having the actual characters of Mickey and Donald thrust to the forefront. I mean, Mickey, Mickey does have a personality in this game. And, um, one of the things that we, well, Dan uncovered, uh, as an interview with, uh, Yuda San, was it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Takashi Yuda. Yeah. Yeah, to, uh, talking about the animation of Mickey himself. Now, um, idle animations became a big thing in the 16-bit era, um, but Mickey was one of the first to do it really, obviously, because as soon as you, you... You don't even have to wait for him to start idling. Even all the time, if you're not touching the controller, he's pretty much swaying to and fro, kind of bopping, looking kind of happy. He teeters on the edge of uh, precipices and stuff like that. And... I think Sega made Mickey Mouse way more charming than he is in the cartoons in this game. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's one of the first times I can remember a magazine saying it's like playing the cartoon. Yeah, I think the animation holds up quite well. I was instantly reminded of Aladdin and Lion King. It's like, well, this game actually doesn't look as bad as you know what I was anticipating because I was expecting you know I haven't played this game for you know donkey's years, so I was expecting like real terrible animation. But I was quite surprised by the just the general animation of you know the the butt bounce and. Stuff like, which is weird to me, the butt bounce, because it's kind of like the anti-Mario move. Because in yeah. Mario, you just got to jump on the enemy to kill him, whereas this, you got to press the button twice. I'm not. I found that quite annoying. Mm. It's it's a, an awkward mechanic when you're so used to Mario and other characters just jumping on them. I, I quite I quite like it actually. Um, in that interview on Sega16.com with Jim Wether, he talks about uh, he's sort of defensive about the fact that you know Cast of Illusion did take a lot from the Mario games that was the Super Mario games that were already in existence and. But they did, you know, they did tweak things a little bit. He run, Mickey runs slower than Mario. He certainly uh, got less inertia. The bottom bounce is different. The fact that you have to press the second button, the button again to activate the bottom bounce. And if you hold it, you get a, an elevated boost, which is a, mm. a a technique that you need to access certain places, certainly to, a, to get a lot of the secrets. does give it that tiny little bit of extra depth that you wouldn't just have from just walking on stuff. And to be honest, when by the time you got to World of Illusion with the, the flapping of the cape, I f- thought that felt massively sort of underwhelming after the the fun of bottom bouncing and chaining enemies together the funny thing is i mean we, we talk about this as amalgamation of games into this game but isn't that fantastic i mean this was a mickey game and nobody was really expecting a mickey game to even be you know talked about in the same vein of, of mario games or sonic games for for sure so the fact that you can even put it within that category of well it plays a little bit like that um and actually still it in high regard and you got to remember this is 20 plus years old this game and it's as playable to, as today as it is well was back then. What I can tell you is from you know years and twenty plus years have passed, and you know the jump isn't great. I mean I, I was I was tweeting about this after I completed the game. It's it's you know back then I, d- I don't remember it being a problem, but there is some of the later parts in the game, um, certainly in the, the clock tower area, which is right <laughs> at the back end of the game, um, and in the mines. In the mines in particular, there's a couple of times where there's just leaps of faith. You you work your way atop of uh, areas and you have nowhere where to go and you just you just need to jump and eventually you may land on a platform or you may miss and and fall to your death and realise you need to jump just a little bit different. There were this wasn't the first Mickey Mouse game though. I mean there have been Mickey Mouse games on the NES, Mickey Mouse games on the English eight bit system or not English eight bit but the popular in England eight bit systems. Um, and and these weren't they weren't all terrible either. This this wasn't the first Mickey Mouse game, and it wasn't the first good Mickey Mouse game either. It's worth saying that. Yeah, the problem with the animation of the jumping is that it's you can't really determine how high he's going to jump. So there's quite an arc to his jump, and when you have to mm. land on these swinging pendulums later on in the clock tower, like you say, Tony, 
you've got no real sort of judgment of how high he's going to jump because I'm pretty sure you can jump at different levels, but it's not like Mario where the longer you press it, the higher he goes. It's sort of like, it's, it, to me, it just felt like he only had one sort of arc. So you had to time the jump way before that pendulum was swinging towards you. He is controllable in the air. He's not He's not Arthur out of Ghouls and Ghosts type jump. <laughs> he, he does have a certain amount of um, in-air controllability, but it's certainly not what we'd expect from a modern game such as, I'm going to say it, Super Meat Boy. But again, hey. as Tony says, with, with the age of the game, um, to compare it to Mario is not really fair because that's the only one that got it perfect from the start that still feels right today to me. Yeah, so. this is pre-Sonic and, and this obviously does, uh, the, you know, I think the success, the review success and probably the commercial success of this game did lead to Sega making Sonic the Hedgehog certainly in 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 some degree. Well, it's a mascot game, degree. isn't it? Just before there were mascot games. It's a... Yeah, um, and Sonic obviously did enable a huge amount of in-air control and uh, and you know a lot of a lot more controllability for the main character. So I imagine that from from feedback, you know, they did decide to kind of speed things up, make make the character more. Um, controllable uh this, you know as we said these are the guys who made previously made Alex Kidd games which are now pretty much reviled um whether it be the the one which was released on the ultimate mega drive collection that that was the mega drive Alex Kidd or there's the 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 master system one that was released on the Alex Kidd and Co Sega Vintage collection and those games are now pretty much described as being not very good let's say, whereas Cast of Illusion, there's still a lot of affection for it. I'd agree, but I did go back and look at Alex Kidd today, and mm. especially the Mega Drive game, which would have been made just before by the same team. Just before, And yeah. there seemed to be quite a lot of aspects of Castle of Illusion in that first Alex Kidd game, just not uh, mm. brought to fruition or, or programmed yeah. very well. When we, we, we talked not long ago about Kirby's Epic Yarn, and, and I mean, this is kind of, I feel, where those games originated from all the way back then or that game in particular originated all back then because you, you got like worlds made of cake i mean yes mm. you're not unzipping stuff but you know it's it's lovely to see a nice dessert world there's bookcases and you're jumping off books and as uh, the staplers and you're using them as you know bouncing devices and stuff and also world of illusion yeah, Although yeah. They've that's both a, got the cake yeah. level and the library level, so I can see where they where do. Yeah, to get confused. <laughs> they 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 do. Yeah, and each yeah. each um, cake level is one of the best looking levels in its respective game. In 16-bit gaming, I would say. Yeah, definitely. There's more layers yeah. of parallax in parallax in those than there are. They're stunning. Yeah, yeah. and I, I still think they look absolutely beautiful, good enough to eat. I'm, um, I'm guessing the one in Castle how... Illusion was made quite late in the game's development. It seems that way because it's, it's just so it's a leap in ahead from some of the other levels. So. One of the things I always felt about Castle of Illusion was that um, the last level looks like it was rushed. It, it looks uglier oh. than all the other levels, like Is that the, the first forest. Level, no, 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 no. The ca- the castle, the clock tower. Oh, the 3D cogs are quite clever, though. Okay, the cogs are good. I'll give you that. But the tile set for the for the actual castle stuff is pretty dull looking, I thought. Maybe it's just I don't like the environment as much. But um, of the other levels, there's the, the the opening level is the forest, which has the absolutely incredible bit in with the dewy webs and the floating leaves, yeah. which I think most people remember. It was you. It was a yeah. favorite screenshot of the time. Uh, the toy level, I think, is still really charming. I love mm. the jelly floors. You can almost taste the blackcurrant jelly as you're going through it. It's interesting the that bit... they seem to have changed the jelly recipe between Castle of Illusion and World of Illusion. I don't know if Definitely. they're using like, less gelatin in World yeah. of Illusion or something, because it slips <laughs> with the floor a lot quicker. Yeah. Um, there's the bit where it flips upside down, which was a sort of almost Mode 7-esque effect in before the SNES was even around. Um, the uh, the temple, the third level, is probably... It, it starts off with that 
amazing epic purple and gold sky but then you go in, inside to this very very sonic-esque um mm. level and then there is the big library as as i call it with the bookshelves the, the milk bottle where you go into the cake world there's the tea you can swim in the teacup and Point this as well because you go in that teacup all you can do is get well you can collect points yeah but <laughs> you're more likely to lose lives which all, is the, the yeah. issue there. all these game have com- all these games have completely pointless scores you know just showing that that's how every game did it back then they have mm-hmm. they have tries which were lives and as um as uh jim quetha says disney had very strict rules so we had to use the term tries instead of lives <laughs> um because obviously mickey can't die so uh, but yes, pointless. You know, like you play something like Rayman Origins now, and you get inf- infinite tries, pretty much. Um, but yeah, the score. If you wanted to just max out the score meter and clock it, you could just do that by you know whatever playing a section with repeating enemies in or whatever. Yeah, and the things like the collectible diamonds and stuff, they were satisfying and they made a delightful noise to pick up, but utterly completely pointless. And yes, I was watching a speed run of Castle of Illusion today and he doesn't go in the teacup why would you go in the teacup Um, but because it was amazing because the idea of swimming in tea and stuff was just so cool there is also some tricky parts you know it's not a particularly hard game but there is a a boss I think in that that kind of that miney area in the third level um, where you're meant to throw projectiles at its head and it's pretty easy to, to kill that way. But if you actually run out of projectiles, because you've been just throwing, well, I think he's throwing apples, isn't he? Yeah. Um, if you run out of those, then he becomes an incredible hard boss to, to kill because he, he flashes around the screen. And it's very hard to, to with your kind of floaty jump to work out where he's going to land. And he actually hit you over and over again. It's uh, So it's just one of those weird like glitches in, in you know, well, not a glitch, but it, you can make it ten times as hard if you're playing ca- carelessly. Because uh, once you die, it, you, they don't give you projectiles back. <laughs> well, again, this was, you know, in the day of uh, home games being a lot more like coin-ops in that the idea was that, you know, you'd get to the third boss. If you'd never seen it before, you were probably going to die. And that means starting again <laughs> from the first level. And, and that's, you know, that's that's how it was. Suck it up. There's no there's no save code. There's no there's no battery. It seems you like arbitrary difficulty in mm. like with with a modern sort of viewpoint but i guess when you're charging 50 quid for a 30 minute game then you need to do those <laughs> things to to keep exactly people playing it. it and this was not in terms of um on cartridge uh chips this was not a small game i, I think i guess it was 8 megabit probably i don't yeah, know yeah we were in the realms of 8 meg then um yeah i'd imagine it would have uh, been which were they were expensive to produce at that point. Um, you know, it was a while before we started seeing sixteen, and then twenty-four, and then thirty-two megabit cartridges. Um, this is megabit, not megabyte. So it's a quarter. A megabit is a quarter of a megabyte. I think is yeah. that right? Sounds right. Yeah. Uh, so these, you know, these games were expensive to produce in terms of man hours, and you know, this this is one of Sega's finest teams. But yeah, the fact is that short of making it ridiculously hard it was always going to be a short game unless they just put in you know swathes and swathes of empty space but i was actually i probably paid like 25 quid when i first bought it on a second hand cart um i did i didn't feel ripped off because it was all so tightly packed with fun and and fantastic art and music you know also when you realize how few people made it yeah like for it to be that much of a labour of love to the character and to the whole Disney ethos, I think is quite amazing. When you look at it, it's like sort of 15 people made the game. So mm. when you look at today's teams of like hundreds, you have to put it in perspective, don't you? Yeah, this game, um, it has got quite a bit of fun in there as well. The the toy level was a, probably a highlight for me. You have to climb all the way to the top of this like toy level when you grab a key and then it's just a mass slide of, well, slides on the way back down and it's just mm. the hilarious Mickey Mouse animation of him just sort of 
forcefully running down the, all these slopes to the bottom was they could have made that really bad for the player. They could have made it such a chore to climb all the way mm. back down, but they didn't. They 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 knew that you know Sonic style. Yeah, just get get to the end really quick. Even his legs There's look some... like Sonic in that bit. It's like mm, yeah, they... and even when he's on the edge of the uh, like a platform, he does the old arm waving thing where he's sort of oh. you know, on the precipice of the edge. It's sort of yeah. like it looks just like Sonic, and it's crazy how much like carryover there is. Yeah, and, and and also another thing that they did in this game that was you know showed that the the care they were putting into it was things like that slide section. The music will change. Um, it's it's actually orchest you know it's it's choreographed and orchestrated so that you will get special you know music stings and stuff for certain things. I love the bit in the second section of the very first level actually. No, I think it's yeah it's after the 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 floating leaves section where you go into the next bit and it looks just like the same sort of forest as you've been in before and it starts off with this really happy little jingle but then after like three bars it turns into this minor key spooky music and there's all ghosts floating around. It's so well done. Yeah, and then on the flip side to it being really fun in the toy level, I found the Dark Forest level to be one of the most painful things in recent memory because really? it asks you to go in these like little sort of, how do you describe it, like basically just pools of water that push you along the side of the level and the very last one to Those take you to the Sonic exit. Those are very Sonic as well. Oh yeah, you have to go ac- across and under all the other bits, don't yeah, you? Like yeah, like a water current, yeah, and there's, but there's one specific water current that takes you to the exit and I could not for the life of me find out. Lowest one. Oh, it just—I kept falling the wrong one, and then those fish would get me, and I'm like, okay, the fish are bitten yeah. me. Like, there, there it is, there's the current, and I'd look, and then I'd immediately lose it as I come to the top. That's classic padding in a short game. There's a bit in Quackshot which is uh, much the same thing, I think, and and I, I found that bit worse because I think again, I you know, this is the thing about not playing it through again. Although I probably would have remembered which funnel to go down. Um, because I I learned the game by playing it over and over again. After the after the first time you've completed it, it's not a problem. Yeah, but it's funny, isn't it? I, I managed to, even though I had no idea which way to go. You know, my memory wasn't that good. I actually managed to do it the first time. <laughs> I don't think it was top and then bottom. I was like, oh yeah, I could, that could have really gone wrong. I said to myself yeah. as I was went past it. Did it for me. <laughs> well, I mean, what I, what I say. I mean, this is more of a summary for this game. Um, I, I, going back to it now, and it is twenty plus years later. I I think. Visually, it's it's still very very good, um, but actually gameplay, that jump does eventually grind a little bit, um, and certainly back towards the back end of the game, mm. it feels like it isn't quite like the gameplay isn't quite as adequate as the artistically, as the artistic style of the game itself. Um, but like I know it's it's no excuse to say twenty years, but it you know I I don't remember having those issues back then. It's just and the game is so short that. Really, it's not an issue once you beat it, and it's only even if it takes you two hours, which seems to be at the longer end of the scale. But in those moments of some of that clock tower segments where you're just like, oh, Jesus Christ, like you could just be a little bit more precise here, like you need to forgive that a little bit. I think I definitely think by today's standards, it's a very sedate game. Um, not perhaps not quite as sedate as Quackshot, but it is it isn't fast. But I think again, it's very much worth stressing. You played the PAL version, yeah, and it can't be underestimated just how much shit we put up with in Powerland back in the day because <laughs> you're you're playing this you're playing a 16.7% shitter version of this than it was programmed to be I did for many years yeah it was also you're playing it bordered with with squash graphics so the characters look shorter and fatter than they should do um, the response time between pad and on-screen action is altered, and 16.7% by the way is not insignificant it is no, it's, not. it's almost a fifth uh, of the speed the game's supposed to run at. So, like, you couldn't do a speed run on a PAL version of this game because your time would be, by default, 
you know, you, I mean, you, I know you can do a specific PAL speed run, but I'm saying you couldn't compete with an NTSC time on a PAL version because it would be 16.7% slower, no matter even if you perfected the game. Um, and things like a floaty jump and, and the underwater sections, and this comes up particularly in Quackshot. Like Donald, although I know you spend a lot of time doing the front slide with, with Donald in Quackshot, which speeds things up a lot. But his walk is slower than Mickey's walk, I think. And in the PAL version, he looks positively obese. He looks morbidly overweight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, then you go in the underwater section, which are already slower and floatier because, hey, they're platforming game underwater sections, and that's how you do it. And then you take away 16.7% of the speed, and it's fucking torture. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I know it was kind of no one's fault in a way, but the fact is that later in the day, developers did start optimizing games. You know, in fact, there already had been games on other consoles, on other platforms, mm. optimized for PAL. And, you know, that ran at 50 hertz rather than, you know, whatever, the equivalent of 60 minus 16.7%. Is, yeah. I'm glad I was oblivious to most of this as a kid. I, it wasn't until the later, I, I yeah. think I talked to her, and I had, a, I think, Metal Gear Solid on the PlayStation. I had the NTSC version. I went to the, the Power one. I was like, oh, my God, yeah. this is ridiculously yeah. slow. Yeah. It was almost the equivalent of it felt like he was running compared to walking. I, I think it'd be interesting um, so. for you to go and play, um, as you own the uh, the Power cartridge, you can entirely legally play the, the NTSC ROM on an emulator. Not that it would matter anyway, because Sega never really released this game. Um, and play the NTSC version and, and just see how much more fun it is to control Mickey. That, yeah. um, because I really do think it... I, I think you're right. I think Mickey is floaty and, and to control and the jump is a bit weird and, and kind of pre... The, the, the arc he, he describes is slightly peculiar. But in the NTSC version, he feels very much more controllable. Like, you, you know, when you do the bigger bottom bounce on the ghost's heads and, and that spooky forest level, you can steer him left and right, and it doesn't feel like you're trying to drag him over from side to side. And... <laughs> I feel so hard done by now. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that's how I played it back in the day. But, yeah, I would... Uh, this the, the only re-release that this game has had um, outside of the the other versions is the Sega Ages pack with this with Castle and Quackshot which came out in 1998 on the Saturn Japan only um, you can there's normally a copy or two on eBay but the the least you'll pay is sort of 50 60 quid um, and it goes upwards from there and I I have no idea why it's only the two games and not the three why is it not the the Mickey game, the Donald game, and the Mickey and Donald game, like we're covering on this show. Why is it only the two of them? If it was the three, I tell you what, I would pay sixty quid for the trilogy on a Saturn disc. Maybe they had a second one planned and they never got round to it, where they would put another, you know, game on there, like the third one that you're describing about being missing. Maybe there was a second one planned and they never got round to doing it. But they're such small games that, like in that, yeah. in on a CD-ROM, you could fit like dozens on there, and yet- yeah. Yeah, it's quite sad. Like, um, especially as it's almost like Castle and World are the two that should go together and Quackshot separate, if mm-hmm. if anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the yeah, that's the illusion game. Yeah, you were saying you you read somewhere that maybe it's some kind of weird rights issue, but yeah, there's speculation that it's something to do with licensing. That there's some Disney issue in World of Illusion that doesn't exist in the other two games. But <laughs> almost, like, I can't see what that could be because it's all owned by the by Disney, no matter what it is. Yeah. So. There's loads of references to, to different Disney stuff in World, which you know maybe less so than some of the others. But if Disney owns the rights, then what would be the case? Maybe it's certain people worked on it and weren't willing. 
who knows? I mean, I assume Sega owns owns it outright anyway, but the whole Disney... I mean, we might as well talk about this now because it covers all three games. The whole point of this never seeing a re-release, which could you imagine these being put into some, you know, a nice kind of... I don't want to say just HD version. Oh. I think you could do a, a beautiful upgrade of the animation. I think it would be very this. difficult because it's all 2D sprite stuff. Like, you know, I would love a sort of a Rayman Origins level of graphics God, looking just... remake of these. It would be <laughs> stunning. But uh, to be honest, I would be just as happy to see the trilogy re-released on the, the Sega Vintage Collection label on XBLA. That, a lot of AM7 games fun. already have been. Do you know what I mean? You've got Golden Axe and Streets of Rage. So Revenge of Shinobi. But, they, yeah. but these are such classic games. And, they, they, you know, we always talk about, you know, a new generation and having access to this kind of stuff outside of emulation, which really is that the kind of like, that weird, dirty word that gets thrown around. That there is no other way to play these other than what I did, which was... Drag out, drag down my Mega Drive from the Buy old Mega seven. Drive, or, yeah, yeah, and pay. Yeah. I think I paid seven pound for each of the games, which you know, it, you know, they're relatively available. It's it's not a hard per, uh, thing, but who's really going to do that? Um, yeah, we know we know of one person who decided to play along with the show um, because they contacted us to say that they've done it. It's Mike Leddy, who we'll hear from later. Um, I hope that some somewhere out there amongst our thousands of listeners that. At least one or two other people have have gone back to these and played them, but I imagine you know as shows go, this is going to be a relatively low uptake on that for <laughs> for whatever reason. I don't know. But I hope the... people listen to it, and if if they're not interested in playing these Mega Drive games, uh, maybe they're more interested in playing the Power of Illusion, which is coming out for 3DS soon, or Epic Mickey too. You know, I hope it sort of inspires people to check out that not to write off all Disney games as complete crap, basically. Absolutely, there is a lot of Disney out there that isn't very good, and. Uh, but you know, people have fond memories of Ducktales on the NES. The, the as I say, the Capcom trilogy on the SNES, the Magical Quest games had their mm-hmm. definitely had their merits, had some um, sweet elements. And uh... but I would imagine that the whole Disney thing and Sega thing, though, we're never going to see any, any kind of re-release of these games. Because just because, um, imagine the legal issues. Oh yeah, there. but Wreck It Ralph has got them hugging again. Like what? Imagine if like sixteen-bit Disney and Mickey, uh, Donald and Mickey were in Wreck It Ralph. That would be great. Wreck It Ralph could be the, could be the answer to a lot of licensing issues if everyone's going to jump into bed together. Yes, that'd be nice. Um, yeah, I thought we'd uh, we'd talk just a little about um, Power of Illusion right at the end because obviously it's not finished yet. Well, it probably is finished, but we haven't played it yet. So, um, but good shout, Darren. Before we get on to Quackshot, uh, I wanted to mention uh, a Sega release from November 1991. Came out just before Quackshot, actually. Uh, now this was Fantasia. Uh, their licensed Sega's licensed game to tie in with the uh, the famous um, synesthesia uh, classical music and cartoon um, Fantasia film, but actually what it was really was another Mickey Mouse game. Uh, it, you play him as the the Sorcerer's Apprentice character from Fantasia. The only thing is because uh, this team, the AM7 team who did the games we're talking about, were busy doing Quackshot. Uh, they roped in uh, French game developers, Infograms, to do it. Now, Infograms had made some decent games up to that point. Uh, I'm trying to think of them. Uh, French, develop- <laughs> French development was always a, a bit of a... I don't know if it was partly xenophobic from the English point- press's point of view, but French games were always considered to be the weird ones back in the 80s and, and, and early 90s. Like, oh, French games are so weird. You know, I'm thinking about... Bat and Biochallenge and Captain Blood and all these strange, bizarre things. But yeah, so they got Infograms to make them a a, a, a Disney Mega Drive platformer. And uh, fortunately, I never bought it, but I did rent it. And uh, 
It was terrible. It was dreadful. Uh, I bought this. I actually traded in, uh, oh, I no. think, three other Mega Drive games. Um, oh. Um, there was a place called That's Entertainment in Romford, where I used to get import games <laughs> from. Um, that sounds glamorous. Just off the market. Mm. Lovely little place. Um, <laughs> just off yeah, the market. I'd Bill's obviously games. played uh, Castle of Illusion, <laughs> and Fantasia looked fantastic from the screenshots mm. in the magazine. Screenshots were good. Yeah, and I got lured into it. The guy got it in on import, and this was like... Only a few weeks before the PAL release, I think. But um, yeah. I was just so excited for it, and then traded in three games, took it home, and I've oh, never man. been. I think it's my biggest disappointment in gaming. Yeah, Horrible it's game. spectacularly annoying. It's brutally difficult for all the wrong reasons. The collision detection is just horrendous. It it learned the the, the infograms teams who worked who worked a team who worked on it, and we haven't gone into you know, research this on the same level. It may be that a lot of the people who worked on this went on to make amazing games um, for other people, I don't know. But they learned none of the lessons uh, of Cast of Illusion. And instead of making a really fun, playable, charming platformer with a fantastic license, you know, you think of the things you could have done with a Fantasia license as well. They made a really shitty, annoying Mickey Mouse platformer. Do look at some screenshots, though. Yeah. (laughs) And imagine what could have been. But happily... Uh, anyone who'd uh, been sold a pup in, in the shape of Fantasia could trade it in just a month later for a copy of uh, I Love Donald Duck, a Georgia Uno Hihu. Oh, yeah. Or Quackshot starring Donald Duck. I'll play that one, yeah. <laughs> uh, at the same time, uh, as I said earlier, they, uh, the Master System and Game Gear got Donald Duck's Lucky Dime Caper. Uh, who made that one? Dan, do you remember? Um, Lucky Dime Caper is by... Another side of AM7, the people that concentrated on the Master System releases. Um, I think it's more the 8-bit Alex Kidd team that did the uh, the Lucky Dime Caper and the uh, Illusion games on the Master System. Right, and it was uh, well-received, as I recall, Lucky Dime Caper. Uh, yeah, very much so. It seems to sort of have an air of DuckTales on the NES. I think that's why people yes. quite like it. Um, although you've got a massive great hammer that you can... You can smack the enemies with, which is okay. which is always nice. <laughs> Should have been Donald's lucky hammer caper. Yeah, I wonder how they got away with that with Disney. Like, was yeah. that in the cartoons? Well, Donald Duck was always quite violent. Um, mm. Although he doesn't kill enemies in Quackshot, well, but some of them do go off screen once you get your your yeah, popcorn chili power up and the chili power up. Yeah, that is just mm. that is just weird. That is, I can't, I, I don't remember the the chili power up at all. But when I saw no. it recently, I was just like, that is absolutely insane. Like, I, I love the chili power. Yeah, it's it's great. Don't get me wrong. And but it, the the game's so slow paced. It's sort of like Donald yeah. Duck just plodding along with his yeah. fat ass, and then he picks up like five chilies, and he just goes absolutely nuts. It kind of <laughs> reminded me of um, Tasmanian Devil. The you know yeah, just right, the, yeah. just the nature of that. It was just yeah, that chili thing actually only lasts about four seconds. Yeah. It's actually you know like, oh yeah, I'm going to activate it, and then you can kill maybe it's like invincible moments that you can take down two or three enemies, but it only lasts about four seconds. Ah, like, oh. <laughs> it would have been like twenty seconds. I could have gone through the entirety of the. It also has a very strange, uh, not Donald Duck. But duck sound when you when you collect it, it's kind of like a. <laughs> yeah, there was no attempt at, at samples in in the first two games we're we're dealing with here. So you don't, as I recall, you don't hear Mickey in his high pitched tones or Donald making his famous quacks at all. So again, given the way it comes across in World of Illusion, not sure it was such a bad thing. I guess World of Illusion was on a larger cart, but uh, I'm not sure. Quack shot, you can speed run. Uh, I saw a tool assisted speed run. Uh, for 22 minutes. 
<laughs> but I watched a, a a legal playthrough which lasted 45 minutes. But I definitely remember it taking me longer than that. And Tony, you fell foul of the uh, the no save issue the other night. Yeah. So we had a conversation, a quick conversation on Twitter about this. It it is interesting, isn't it? Because when we I had a lot of free time back when I was a kid because that's what we did. So I used to play games in one sitting and not really think anything of it. Obviously today's, you know, modern gamer with our ADHD syndrome, it's like, oh I'm just gonna play this for two hours and I for me I, I guess in my mind I remember quite shot being a, a smaller game than it, it turned out to be. So and you know, I was still trying to figure out the puzzles, so it's not like I had this imprinted in my mind of I need to go here, 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 here. So I'd I'd put a couple of hours in, um got relatively far i'm gonna guess probably about halfway through the game and then uh realized i, I couldn't save it <laughs> and i went ah so you either do do the thing you do as a kid or i remember doing as a kid which is you hide the red light on your mega drive and blink it <laughs> yeah. so your parents couldn't see that you left it on for the entirety of the night while it and got then, really hot <laughs> yeah and then during the school day and you finally come home to either find it's either crashed yep. or it's still going and, <laughs> and i can complete the game or i did what i did was, was like well i'm adult now and if i'm a parent then you know I don't want my kids doing that, so I turned it off and just said, well, I'll have to come back and, and try again tomorrow night. But obviously it was a lot faster the second time through because I knew what I was doing. But yeah, no save states. What was your history with the game, Tony? This is a weird one for me because I did play this, but I don't I mean, I, I don't recall any of the end stuff, so I, I can't. I, I couldn't have completed it. Um, a lot of that stuff was completely alien to me, mm. although I, I remember quite vividly the start of the game. But along with that, I had, the I think it was the NES, yeah, it was NES, wasn't it, the quack shot? game um or the the nez ducktales that's it i had i had a lot of that stuff imprinted on my mind which i think was just this weird amalgamation of both those games put together um so a lot of the stuff i remembered actually wasn't in that game and i I had a quick look through um youtube and it's like oh no that stuff was in ducktales and and vice versa so yeah i never did see the end credits so yeah to legally be on the show i would have had to come back (laughs) and play it again anyway um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, once again, who knows when I played it, but it, it would have been you know, probably uh, once again, 18 months after the release, no doubt. Uh, Darren? Uh, very similar to Castle of Illusion. Like a bunch of people had uh, Mega Drives around me. I seem to remember my next door neighbor having... Did you not have a Mega Drive then? I did, but I didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, it's just sort of like <laughs> borrow games or, or rent games. Um, she had like a Mega Drive in a plastic case. It seemed like everyone had Mega Drives in cases back then because they took yeah. them upstairs to downstairs. I had one of those. Yeah, like a little, just a little briefcase, but it wasn't a briefcase. It was just plastic that moulded around your Mega Drive. And she'd flip it open and there was like, um, it was, I should, the Japanese or Asian Mega Drive had the red band on the front. Am mm-hmm, I right yeah. in saying that? Yeah, she had one of them with Quackshot and a Japanese Sonic 2 and it had like a wicked front cover that I remember. And yeah, I yeah. borrowed Quackshot off of her ages ago and, the, I remember the actual mechanic of Donald Duck. It wasn't very appealing to me at the time because I had games like Sonic where, you know, instantly more appealing. And It felt very slow going back to Quackshot mm. after uh, having played Sonic a few months earlier. Dan? Um, it's one of my first rentals. I'm not sure which came first, this or Pac-Mania, but um, it's one of those two. would have been one of the first games I rented from a video shop. So um, I only played it. I don't think I actually completed it back in the day because obviously for no. a rental, again, you couldn't save um, but I remember again feeling quite disappointed. Like there's that just didn't have the the speed of other Sega games that I was I was used to at the time. So having rented it, I didn't get round to to finishing the game. But um, but I did enjoy what I played 
while being a bit disappointed, really. Yeah, I think um, when I first played it, I, I was slightly disappointed. I think just because I love the sort of fantasy element of um, Castle of Illusion so much. And for, I know it sounds kind of crazy, but Quackshot's kind of set more in the real world. <laughs> it's like, um, you know, you, it's, it's a globe-hopping, epic Indiana Jones-style adventure. Hmm. Uh, only you're Donald Duck. Um, you go to Mexico and Transylvania and India and Egypt and South Pole with the Northern Lights, and uh, there are there are fantasy elements. Of course, there's a there's a Viking ship with a ghost boss and and various things like that. But well, you say um, fantasy, yeah, it's, it's a documentary style dogma <laughs> game making. And you also forgot thickin' annoying uh, Viking boss as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the the thing that separate the other thing that separates this game out from the other two games is that rather than just a, a straight action platformer, it has it sort of has um, puzzle elements, uh, or at least item finding elements. Um, and you you can actually go to the wrong places at the wrong time, and sometimes you have to go to a location. And then go back later, almost in a mm-hmm. Metroid style. Yeah, that was that was completely surprising playing it recently. It's like you get to the end of a level and he puts a flag down, and I was like, okay, <laughs> right, um, what, what, what? <laughs> Where do I go? And I was All quite impressed by that because it was just like a, it was like a complete lack of direction. F- well, for me, it was just like, right, what do I do? So I had to check the menus, and I was like, do I call the airplane now? And it was, it came down and picked me up, and I was like, I was not expecting that because the usual sort of level progression is like level one two and it does it all automatically you know like sonic you run past the barrier and it spins around and you get the fancy music whereas this it's just like okay i'll call down huey dewey and louie and yeah. then we go on another adventure i was I was definitely surprised by the <laughs> the metroid aspect of this game it is yeah well impressive another uh, element is that the, it ha- this has a shooting element or a shooter element but also the the, the thing <clears throat> the things that you shoot uh plungers are also puzzle solvers because after a very short while, instead of just disabling enemies, uh, they also become platforms that you can climb and later you can stick them to uh, things flying above you and grab them and pretty much fly about the place. Yeah, they're all different colours, aren't they? They've all got mm. their own properties. So like you yeah, say, what? yellow's stun, red's... Red's the platforming ones and green's the ones that you can yeah. fire vertically onto enemies above you, which opens up uh yeah areas you've not been able to be uh, to get to before um you also get bubblegum ammo which uh unlocks certain wall types of wall and area in the same way that a certain metroid weapon would unlock a door uh and there's a popcorn gun which is actually pretty much to take out um some of the more tricky bad dudes in the later sections hey, i never really used a popcorn gun i was i was pretty much solely plunger man to be honest uh, only when things got hairy with the boss fight did I unleash the popcorn. <laughs> mm, mm. <laughs> but it's it, it. This is definitely the most gamey out of the three games. Um, the I, mean, I'd, I'd say the other two are kind of more adventures, and this one has all those game elements into it. So the backtracking. Uh, I mean, I found myself certainly getting lost right at the very start, not not quite remembering that I needed to collect certain things to to open certain other areas. But I, I like the I I like the idea of the progression of you know you upgrading the plunger as you move you progressively further into the game. Uh, you get like sinks, tears, and stuff like that, don't you? As you get further in, which, maps you know, and unlocks, books and things. Yeah, unlock doors and stuff, and you know, yeah, it's it has that metro tone to, uh, tone to it. So it it definitely feels more of a a gamer's game. Um, but with that comes a couple of more tricky parts mm. because it, it then it strives to be more of that that gamer's game. 
um, it puts more on the player to, to you know some of the platforming becomes that that much more difficult. Some of the shooting sections because you have this shooting mechanic uh, that is utilised all the time. Um, you know, there, there, for instance, there's some later levels. Um, I think it's called the hideout, isn't it? The, the later levels. Pete's which, gang's hideout. Yeah, and you there's like really tight corridors, mm. so just really tight get area, tight areas. And there's very little place to manoeuvre out of the way of things being fired at you. And once again, the life system is it's pretty tough. Actually, I found the game towards the back end pretty tough. It is, it is the hardest of the three easily, I think. And um, yeah, I'm uh, even, you know, again, I was like 20 or something when I played this. Maybe 21 or 22 by the time I actually finished it with the help of a guide. Because of that... The maze section the and the maze, fact that I kept yeah. getting lost. The maze is one of those awful early, early. I know this isn't super early video gaming, but that era of video gaming, um, random arbitrary mazes with numbered doors. You have no idea which one you need until you just, just trial and error, trial and error. There's, there's nothing entertaining about that section at all in the Maharaja's Palace. Do you remember they'd already used that in Revenge of Shinobi as well? Yeah, uh, it's awful in that. in that as well. Yeah, and in Half Life. <laughs> It is. It is like the teleports in Half Life. You can't. You know, Half Life came out seven years after this and was, in many ways, you know, technological wonder c- compared to Quackshot on the Mega Drive. And yet they still use the same shitty. Try a numbered door. Oh, it's not that one. Try the next numbered door. Oh, it's not that one. Fucking hell! Talk about padding. See, it was when watching a playback of this, I wondered if the sort of Metroidvania aspects were padding or clever game design. I couldn't quite... Bit of both, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think I think there's some some definite game development in there in terms of, mm. oh, this is interesting, you know, let's do this. But there is also some, right, oh, you've got this. Oh, you can't get to that, so you have to go back here, and then you have to go back here. But generally, the levels are... Sp- you, you don't do much replaying of sections. It tends to be that you get to a certain point, then you plant your flag, and when you go back mm. there, you go to the place that you planted your flag. So it's not so like it keeps open, making yeah. you do the same bits of level over and over again. There's very little of that. Yeah. Th- there's a bit where you go backwards in Duckburg, the city level, where you go back through the bit you've already been through, but that, that represents a, a different challenge in itself. So. Oh. I completely bypassed that level by using the red plungers and just plunging them up the side of a building and uh, very Mario 2-esque. Uh, just li- you remember in Mario 2 you could get to secret areas by jumping on top of the world and you'd yeah. see like a secret level. I did that in that in this urban level. I just plunged it all the way to the top of a building <laughs> and just ran all the way across the top of it and just uh, that level was a cinch for but, me. <laughs> and, and, you know, if you're not following a guide, I mean, I've always talked about on, on this show, like if a game is that difficult and you have to follow a guide, then kind of the game in itself is a little bit broken. Um, and But, you know, knowing how, how these older games are. I, this was one I actually followed the guide because I remember Leon telling me about this horrible maze section. And even following the guide, I got a little bit lost, yeah. which just <laughs> that made me laugh. Um, but because the whole the whole plunger, I mean, it's a great idea that you know you can throw a plunger on the wall, you can jump on that plunger and then progressively move up. But it, you find yourself, walk, you know, when I wasn't using the guide, um, just walking up into these areas and seemingly there'll either be a dead end or it looks like you can go down. You go down to the bottom and then that's a dead end. You work your way back up the top and, you know, it, you suddenly realise, OK, well, you know, I even need to backtrack because I've missed an area which I can um, scale upwards. I like the idea of the verticality, but quite often there's no indication that suddenly you can go up this side of the wall because it just looks like a side of a wall mm. or a game environment. Mm. Um, so you end up 
frame plunges everywhere, just trying to, no, that's the ceiling, drop back down. Now, that's, you know, yeah, that's good padding, and but maybe back then um, I would have been appreciative if I spent all that money on a video game. But, you know, modern day gamers, maybe, maybe it's, I found it a little bit kind of frustrating on occasions to, to come to dead ends and having to, to, you know, find the use of a guide just to work my way out of uh, areas which seemingly, you know, it, it was was no indication how to get past them. And the final boss is, uh, takes quite a few hits. Um, but we'll come back to uh, Quackshot for our summaries. Does anyone have anything else they were itching to say about Quackshot? I mean, we've talked about some of the, the beautiful design of um, of the Mickey games in particular, but there's elements in this game which are there. Um, there's a there's a telegraph um, like zip wire yeah, section yeah. which is which is fantastic. I mean, there's the whole South Pole level which that's I, beautiful. I really, I really liked, and yeah. you know, every, even the penguins are dressed up, and and everyone's got Santa outfits or funny hats on or woolly scarves, and you know that brought a, a real big smile to my face, and so mm. you know, artistically, you know, it's mm. it's there. And there's a lot, there's a lot of variety as well because of the 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 globe trotting theme of the game. Uh, you're you're never in the same place for for that long, um, and the contrast between the levels. You know, you start off in Mexico and it's all sort of orange rock, and then later on you end up in Transylvania and this sort of purpley castle and hmm, on a ghost ship and stuff like that it genuinely it genuinely does sell the feeling of globetrotting even though it's this ridiculously car- cartoony environment and what you now see is actually a very small game on a relatively small cartridge it seems to be quite high resolution for a 16-bit game though in yeah. comparison to say castle of illusion and world of illusion i think it's got a slightly better look with hindsight, now you see if I was going to ask anyone about the display uh, modes of a Mega Drive, it'd probably be you, Dan. So I don't know actually. I was going to ask you how many colours are on screen in each of these games and um, what the actual resolutions they're running in at. Um, not very high by today's standards is the answer. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to normally tell you talking three hundred and something by two hundred or something like um, that. Yeah, I think it was it's three hundred and something by two hundred and twenty-four. Sounds but, about right. Um, mm. Mm number of colours, it would be 56 definitely for Quackshot and Castle of Illusion. Yeah. Um, then they might possibly have doubled that by the next game, but I'm not too sure. Yeah, and, and this was the era also when, although sometimes a company would announce that it was putting extra hardware in its cartridges, like the the um, the VR chip or whatever it was that yeah, they put the in the ESP, chip ESP that's it. Um, or, the, or the FX chip in the SNES occasionally they would just slip these things into cartridges to give a particular development team team a little boost and never sort of really announce it um, just because they knew it would make their console look more desirable more powerful and I think probably what a wonderful era I think probably towards the end I don't know about this again Dan would know more about this than me but it wouldn't surprise me if to towards the latter stages of the Mega Drive when the SNES was probably the more desirable machine it could it had more colours on screen it had mode 7 Things like that. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if Sega were doing little, you know, tricks like that to try and keep the games up to speed. We we were talking about some of the games that came out in the latter days of the Mega Drive, like there's a game called Red Zone by Zirinx, who went on to become IO Interactive. We we reckon, and the music's by Jesper Kidd and and all this stuff. But technically, it's it's aston it's hard to believe it's a Mega Drive game because it's got all these sort of ray traced graphics in and um, I love that before the title screen even comes up it says like this game features like uh, 3D polygons full motion video blah 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 and it's yeah. on a cartridge it's incredible yeah, yeah and um, Sega's own um, Vector Man as well they, these were using techniques that you know maybe it was just late gen stuff where they'd actually worked out how to get the most out of the basic Mega Drive but you do sometimes wonder if there were little bits of extra gubbins in the cartridges themselves to get that little bit of extra performance out. 
maybe we'll never know. Another great soundtrack as well on this. Some really good memorable tunes. I really like the South Pole music. Um, some of it, some of it's less memorable, but I think there's some great stuff in there. I Maybe I'm being unfair. I think it's more the quality of the instruments that they use rather than. I would go along with that. It does. It's a bit tinnier than the Castle of Illusion soundtrack. Yeah. Overall, I don't, again, I don't. Maybe they, maybe they afforded more of the cartridge space to graphics, or the you know, if you're right about the resolution, or maybe it's the variety of the landscapes meant that uh, the musician Bo had less room to work in. Yeah, there's a few different drivers that they use. That's usually what it comes down to. Um, See, this is why we got you on this show. Yeah, and in some <laughs> cases they even like uh, like Yusuke Shiro wrote directly to the hardware. He did, and it and frankly, it showed. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, and I think World of Illusion might be doing some similar trickery to that. But yeah, Quackshot's definitely using one of the, should we say, lower end. less yeah. listenable <laughs> uh, drivers for the Mega Drive. So. Yeah, you can hear some stuff in, in World of Illusion. Um, I'm thinking of the, the spider web in the jeweled cave section in there, which sounds so cinematic. It sounds like one of the pieces of music from an old Disney cartoon. It's really ri- far richer than oh. you feel like you should be getting out of a 16-bit sound chip. What is a little weird as well? I mean, references like there's Dracula in Quackshot. He looks like Duckula, of course, which but there's no relation between no. Count Duckula and, <laughs> and the and the director here. But there's lots of cameos from old, not not obvious cameos of apart from Pete. But like well, the dragon in the dragon in Castle of Illusion looks very much like Pete's dragon. Yeah, um, and the tiger in the Maharaja looks very much like Shere Khan from the Jungle Book and so on. So they obviously, you know, the the graphic Love. graphical artists were obviously taking classic Disney for their inspiration. The whole emboss as well, that that's almost taken now straight off from um, Indiana Jones, the knife-wielding dude at the end. Oh, right. Very as bizarre. is the jumping across the uh, the chasm, uh, kind of leap of faith, but when, you know it's showing the next platform as you jump mm-hmm. from the last It's a bit one. like uh, Last Crusade, isn't it? Yeah. 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 That's uh, that's an amazing looking scene. It's very short, but again, just beautiful graphics. Uh, and so, a year later again, 92, came A World of Illusion. Uh, now, this was the one that I got straight away, because it was a Christmas present. Um, and in fact, I'll tell my story first. It was, I'd, I'd read the reviews, seen the, seen the screenshots, knew I loved the uh, Cast of Illusion in particular, and, and although I'd enjoyed Quackshot, it, well, I didn't love it as much at the time. Um, I was thinking, oh my god, this looks like the true successor to Castle of Illusion. This is going to be amazing. Read the reviews and there was talk of it being quite short. And I thought, oh, how short can it be? Um, and uh, I asked my mum to get it for me for Christmas. Bear in mind, again, I'm about 21 years old at this point. <laughs> this is not, I'm not, I'm not seven or eight. You know, this is like... And because I know that we're going around to see family on Christmas Day, I managed to persuade my mum that I could have my present on Christmas Eve. Um, so I played it on Christmas Eve and uh, finished it on my first go in about 45 minutes like, no but of course you can play it again with Donald and you can play it again in co-op and I played it through countless times so it was uh, it was well worth it and again it was another one that I think I traded and rebought and traded and rebought a few times so and what a wonderful 45 minutes it is <laughs> yeah <laughs> had that few of that in my life Dan when did you did you get this at the time or? Um, I got it probably six months after the launch I think I got it got it the summer after um, but I had been eyeing it sort of speculatively with the reviews as you say saying it was quite short but great 
like great as a, a, a short platform experience. So I think I must have picked it up when it was maybe like 15, 20 quid cheaper than it would have been. Yeah. Um, and I was really impressed by it, thoroughly impressed by it. Maybe because I, again, I got it after the hype had died down. That happens even to this day, day with games. You know, when Absolutely. you get a game a while after and you can appreciate it for what it is. Um, and yeah, I clocked it over and over and over again. Hmm. It's, I found it a stunning game. Uh, Darren? Uh, just copy and paste my previous responses to okay. playing Mega Drive games. <laughs> just borrowed it off someone else in the time. Sweet. And yeah, the, actually, the same response for me would be uh, the SNES stuff. So I, I only ever borrowed yeah. uh, other people's SNES stuff. So It's just the way it was back then. It was a lot of money. Some SNES carts were fifty nine ninety nine. you know. It's... Yeah, let other people buy. Yeah. <laughs> um, for me, actually, I, I remember having this one on a faster time scale than the others. Although, you know, maybe I would have played them all, all but back-to-back time I got the other ones and then moved on to this one. But I remember the, the, the hype for this one, for what it was back then, was, was relatively big. Um, and see, once again, seeing the screenshots, and they looked fabulous. Uh, and maybe I think I was probably a bit more engaged with gaming uh, at that point as well. So I, I do remember, you know, being a lot more, you know, anticipating for this for this title to be released. So Exciting. It was. Um... So, uh, it feels, I, I found, um, at the time that it felt, even though it is still a platform game, it feels, it, it doesn't feel like a pure platformer in the way that Castle does. Uh, although obviously, you know, you did have the apples you could chuck in Castle. Uh, in this, you couldn't jump on things anymore. You bottom bounce them. You only had this, uh, magical cape swish, mm. which I always felt. As I said earlier, felt a bit on wishy-washy and inconsequential compared to bottom bouncing them. Just me? No, yeah, the, the bottom bouncing definitely has more of an impact, obviously, because you're smashing literal, people's face. Yeah, <laughs> virtual impact with your uh, with your anus. Uh, but yeah, the, I quite enjoyed the animation of the the, the magical cape because yeah. the, the particle effect the particle effects come off the cape and it it you know has that sort of reward the feedback of you swishing them. Although I uh, I understand what you mean, I actually. I adored this game. I loved it. I loved it back then, and I love it now. And um, although it's it's certainly not a pure, I say pure platform as the first game, but you, you get the idea. Um, and the, and the cape swishing is more just a, a kind of a fancy way of, of killing things, and, and maybe slightly less fun. Um, I found this game to be more of a journey. It was more of like this, you know, wonderful magical experience. Mm. Um, and you know the cape swishing and, and maybe some of the, the the less stressful platforming which is is still assistant in the first game um you know e- even now played into me enjoying this game you know a lot more for that because you know it, it wasn't it wasn't trying to be this you know slightly devious platformer it was just this great magical journey that you took with Mickey and occasionally Donald if you were on a two player game so I probably appreciated it just for being what it was but I'd imagine if you were really into the platforming for the first game I, I could see how you'd be like uh oh. Maybe not quite as inconsequential. I don't know if it's true in the NTSC version, but the power version was certainly a bit glittery. Uh, glittery. It was a bit glittery, but it was also a bit flickery and glitchy. The whole uh, getting rid of sprites would kind of cause the a little bit of slowdown and the and the uh, enemies to flicker a bit. Which yeah, was... when you're getting rid of say five of the guys with spears at once. Yeah does tend to lag a little and also there seems to be a delay on pushing the button and the cape switching a little so yeah yeah a lot of animation there yeah. was mm. yeah yeah um so again you start off in a, a forest and a cave environment this time it's kind of very sort of goldeny autumnal would we say then you go into that cave that i mentioned before which is one of my again one of my favorite sections um 
glittering jewels in the foreground and background. They were they were attempting stuff here. The artists that maybe other games hadn't tried before, but you see a lot in in modern platforms like Rayman Origins, where it's not necessarily parallax, but there's the the implication that there are things in the foreground and in the very far background. Mm-hmm. In the same kind way. of like hyper foreground. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You're just it's... seeing like the very edge of very close objects. Yeah. So right at the very start, right at the very you know, the first screen you're, you're moving on, you, you have the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland mm. um, actually wandering up from the, the front of the screen and moving slightly into the background. Mm. Yeah. It's fantastic. It, it looks beautiful even now. Uh, next level is, a, 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 again, is a, a magical uh, car- magic carpet level in the sky, but uh, transitions to a stormy mountain, um, fiery lightning bolts coming down at you and stuff. Mm. Uh, there's a uh, an underwater level in which you're in a bubble, which controls differently. It actually takes a lot of the pain out of an underwater level because you're you move faster in this bubble that you're in, um, and this has the most eerie music as well. Uh, hopefully, we'll hear some of that if you can find it. Uh, then uh, the fourth level is the return to a very similar sort of giant room. Um, also has a, a a sh- this this has a, a a glittery sugar lump subsection which I think is amazing. Uh, instead of a instead of climbing into a milk bottle this time, you climb into a cookie box and it has a perhaps even more opulent and lush uh, cakes and sweets type area. Mm-hmm. And then, mag- perhaps most magically of all, you end this section by flying into space on a fizzy pop cork, which is so cool. <laughs> I think it was, That's yeah, brilliant. Yeah, Champagne cork, wasn't it? Like yeah. pops. I, I assume fizzy pop because it was all sweets and cakes, but yeah, it could be champagne. Um, fifth level, rather disappointingly, I felt was is clearly inspired by Disney's own take on Alice in Wonderland, or at least the first part part of it is. And there's element, there's sort of nods to this throughout the game with the playing cards and and so on. But the last, the very last section is just a sort of weird. I don't, I couldn't couldn't really describe it better than a magical area. It's like sort of the 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 wraparound of this. Uh, game. Uh, we haven't talked about the plots or spoiled them. Wow. Uh, I was going to say what an ungrateful bitch Daisy Duck was, and perhaps how <laughs> yeah. uh, we could have another conversation about how poorly women are represented in video games in Quackshot because all she wants is fucking jewels. She doesn't care that Donald Duck's been around the world to get this uh, <laughs> this statue. But um, yeah, pretty much we explained Castle of Illusion. Um, but World of Illusion is Mickey and Donald are going to put on a magic show for their pals and. Uh, Donald disappears into a magic box. Mickey follows to try and get him back. So I guess the the, the end stages, but it also has like uh, constellations and things. It's just generally sort of, yeah, magicy. Yeah, way <laughs> back in the the second level as well. Um, you, you're talking about the magic carpet ride. There's also clouds which are shaped as piano notes. Mm. So as you walk across, they make tunes. Well, yeah, you say tunes, but again, um, yeah. as with Shush. Uh, as, as with as with the um, the speech samples that they brought in for this game, the Alakazam, and uh, similar, the uh, the the piano they they went for a sort of sampled piano note. Now, anyone who ever played Street Fighter Two on the Special Champion Edition on the Mega Drive will know that the Mega Drive was many things, but a, a good at playing back audio samples was not one of those things, right, Dan? Yep, Sonic Boom. Yeah, right. it was a very crackly speech. I think it's because they had to, again, the size of cartridges in those days and the amount of space that speech took up. They were super combined with the, yeah, and then combined with the Mega Drive sound chip being nowhere near what the Super Nintendo could do uh, theoretically. Yeah, 
Um, then yeah, samples were on a hiding to hell on the Mega Drive, really. Yeah. So, so it's it's a slight shame because I, I love the idea of the clouds shaped like keyboards, and you run across them, and and you you in your head you're hearing this sort of pristine glissando or something, but in the game it's like. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I know, but it brought a smile back to my face. Even even the Alakazam, which I started off the show with. Yeah. Um, yes, it's it's not as clear as in my head as it sounds, <laughs> and <laughs> but. But it's fantastic. The, the moment he done it, I was like, all my childhood came flooding back to me. I was like, oh god, I haven't heard that in so long. <laughs> and it's fantastic. Brilliant. That keyboard does throw bombs at you though, which is slightly a yeah, it's a bit mean. One of the first of Sega's trolling moments of their fans. <laughs> <laughs> I love those clouds with the little. They make the little face when you stand on them and slide you across as well. Yeah, it's a great little sort of signposting. It- when I play Castle of Illusion in the leaf level, sort of a similar thing where you're up on these platforms, you know, suspended in midair and they, they move across. But when I saw the le- uh, the clouds with the faces on that move, that was a definite sign. Like if you stand on this, it's going to shift across. Whereas with the leaves in Castle of Illusion, I was like, does this one move? Oh, yeah, yeah, it does move. It's almost like a different generation of system, although, you know, it's not such a huge leap, but it, it visually it's a, a, a fairly big step up from um, Castle of Illusion. And, um, you know, as we said, they copy levels, not wholeheartedly, but they, they take ideas and themes from the previous game and bring them into this. Mm. So you have the spider web again, which was great in Castle Illusion anyway, but now you have it walking, you know, wandering across the screen and you have to follow its, its you know, its web line and don't fall off the end. And yeah, it's really, really simple. But, and we've seen it used better in, in many games since then. But it was, you know, it was a, it was a nice addition from what was just kind of breaking webs in the first one. Mm. Yeah, and creative platform ideas, and obviously we need to talk about the the fact that it was there's not quite two games in here, or there's certainly not three, but there are entire sections that, if you play as Mickey or Donald, are remixed or different, really. Um, and then again, if you play two player with two pads, um, there's whole elements that are changed in that you. It, the game forces you to co-op, and I think it's absolutely ideal for two kids. Even now, I think mm. um, the idea of getting two kids to cooperate on this game—I think I, I suspect they probably still have a fantastic time hauling the other one up. Brilliantly, Donald gets stuck in gaps that Mickey can go through, so Mickey has to turn back and pull him through. Um, that there's... actually doesn't happen on the NTSC version because he's not as obese. <laughs> he just slides straight through. <laughs> that's not true. That's a gag, by the that's way. Not strictly true. <laughs> that's not strictly true. Um, Aren't you as well when you uh, slap him with your cape and they kind of twist into like a little knot and yeah, they get spun up? Does that actually take yeah. life away or is it just a comedy? Um, I think it's just a comedy moment. Okay. Yeah, yeah and there's, there's two player platforming as well. So, like a minecart where you have to jump up and down on a, a each on a platform to, <laughs> to actually get the thing going. Cool ideas. And. Yeah. Something you, you know, we've uh, we've had some more 2D co-op platformers recently, Mario Brothers Wii and um, Rayman Origins, but it's not something. It's still not something that's exactly commonplace, is it? It does feel quite modern. Hmm. Another thing that you unearthed, Dan, while researching for this show was that the suggestion, due to a an abandoned prototype or something, that World of Illusion was originally not going to be necessarily. Another game in the illusion part of this lineage, but it could have been a quack shot too, or something. Yeah, entire sets of sprites uh, exist in the beta version of World of Illusion um, that are never loaded on screen, but they are definitely loaded when it's in active gameplay. Um, now, if the sprites are, it looks like other code is having to be loaded in as well. Otherwise, 
there's no need for those sprites to be there and findable. Um, so what seems to be a fan theory is that, yeah, this uh, World of Illusion beta was an extension of what might have been a Quackshot 2 at some point. I wonder why. I wonder why they went. Whether it was the developer or the or the publisher or Disney's choice decision to go for a another illusion game rather than a Quackshot game. I'd imagine it would be maybe the sales difference between Castle of Illusion and Quackshot, yeah. and the difference in review scores. Maybe oh, we need to throw Mickey mm. into this. We need a, a sort of team up. Yeah, Mickey's still number one, I guess. That probably. Makes but yeah, I mean, even if that was the case, the gameplay is entirely different. Really, I mean, yeah, it, okay, it doesn't have to. I suppose it has all the platforming stuff, but it, it seems a lot simpler than what Quackshot was doing, even in its level design, like, more complex than Quackshot. It's hard to know how far they got, I suppose, but um, that's an interesting thing. There's never, mm. never been a Quackshot two, the, uh, and 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 uh, until potentially, well, it's it's not a true sequel, but as you mentioned earlier, Darren, we we have coming soon Disney Epic Mickey Power of Illusion. So this is the. 3DS counterpart to Disney Epic Mickey 2, The Power of Two. <laughs> um, it's being coded by a team called Dreamrift, who I know little about. Uh, but they are calling it to a tribute to Cast of Illusion. And our friend and, and uh, correspondent Ryan Astley, who's working on, or finished working possibly, on yeah, done. Yeah, Disney Epic Mickey 2, The Power of Two, um, has said some very nice sounding things about this power of illusion anyone know anything about dream rift or and uh, you know i i can't help but just hearing tribute to castle of illusion and thinking yeah. about the 3ds and thinking wow this could be a, a fantastic um Mickey platform. It certainly looks good. Uh, Nintendo Direct do these videos like every month it seems and they've been focusing on the 3DS and right at the end it's like here comes some 3DS games in the next coming weeks and Power of Illusion was on there for like four or five seconds as they do in these scissor reels yeah. and it looks really impressive now whether it, it plays impressive as, as good as it looks um, but, but it's one thing's for sure is they've definitely kept the the finesse on the on the animation. Mm. And this is out uh, as we record, it's out in about three weeks, so yeah. not long to wait. Just I wasn't aware of it, but it's now down on my need to playlist. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, we're obviously going to play uh, Epic Mickey too, because uh, the word is that it's going to be a significant improvement on on the on the previous attempt, which I didn't get round to playing. Um, the fact that our friend Ryan's worked on it makes me want to play it that much more. Well, the, the the whole Disney game thing. I mean, it, it's it's weird over the years, isn't it? Because because they become a lot more com- commercial and a lot more kind of just basic platformers. Although these were basic platformers, they seem to lose a lot of charm along the way. Just very cynical cash-ins. And it's not for all of them. I mean, there were some great, no, still some some great some. Mega Drive games. Yeah. Um, certainly, but it did seem over the years. But uh, I don't know why, because, yeah, it's certainly with um, with Mickey himself. He's he's Maybe he's just lost a little bit of charm. For, for the modern audience and wasn't helped by Epic Mickey being not a great game, I guess. Because it hasn't been a significant Mickey Mouse featuring nah. movie for a long time. Um, yeah. yeah. Since Fantasia, I guess. So, yeah, <laughs> a very long time. Yeah, that's true. Possibly true. Although I think we're maybe being a bit hard on Disney because between Capcom and Sega, in that 8 and 16-bit era, wow. they, yeah. they caught it very lucky with, uh, like you were saying, the uh, 
is it Disney's um, Mickey's Magical, Magical Quest, Quest or Disney Magical yeah. Quest? Yeah, but there was and also then like Duck Aladdin, Tales on the NES and what have you. Yeah, Aladdin, they, uh, which had good like versions that. on both consoles by different teams. Capcom on the SNES and Shiny, uh, well, who, the team who would become Shiny on the Mega Drive. Jungle Book, uh, that was decent. Lion King, that was decent. Virgin released those, didn't they? I think. Yeah, I, I get. I think what's all been forced into my mind is all the PlayStation One stuff because that's been on the <laughs> PlayStation Store of of late because they're reselling it all. It's like you know, all the all the um, Bugs Life and oh um, that stuff yeah stuff I love there's one called Disney's Action Game featuring Hercules <laughs> how more generic can you make oh, it oh <laughs> yeah that stuff yeah but then there was uh, I mean obviously this is pic- Disney Pixar and very much more recently but um, the Toy Story uh, platformer right. of the time was relatively well received but recently the Toy Story 3 game was is, is quite well yeah, thought it. of isn't yeah it's it? really so. good yeah um, the, other, the last game I wanted to name check and talk about although you know feel free to bring anything else in that you want to was Mickey Mania. Uh, this came out in 1994 originally uh, for Mega Drive and, and SNES. I think it was 1995, probably in Europe. Uh, known by its subtitle of The Timeless Adventures of Mickey Mouse in America and later released in 96 on the uh, PlayStation 1. And it's still available on your PS3 on, on the PlayStation Network. You could play it on Vita. I'd imagine it would look pretty good on there. Um, this was actually a really decent Mickey platformer by an English team, Traveller's Tales, who you may have heard of because they went on to do a series of games featuring Lego. <laughs> um, they were kind of, um, again, Dan and I were talking about this, Traveller's Tales were always a team before they got into Lego. Not that there's technically anything wrong with the Lego games, far from it. Um, but they were known for really pushing technical boundaries on systems. They did it on the Saturn, they did it on the Mega Drive, they even did it on the Amiga. They were they had some really expert coders. But Mickey Mania, not only that, not only had some amazing technical levels, um, bits running out of the screen, it had a, a nebulous stroke Castellian style rotating section. Um, it used mode seven, it was incredibly colourful and it and it had all these uh it was very creative because it had all these um, Mickey through the ages so it starts off with Steamboat Willie in his first appearance uh, from 1928 and it's in black and white and there's like hair on the gate type effects and stuff like that and it goes through uh, Mickey cartoons from the 30s all the way through to the 40s and then a late one in the 90s um, I don't know how well it did on the 16 bits I, th- I suspect it did quite well but I'm pretty sure I remember it being in the ch- PlayStation charts for like two or three years in the same way that Rayman, the original Rayman, did really well on the PlayStation because a lot of people were coming to their 32-bit consoles still, you know, hankering for something that was familiar and comfortable. So uh, a sort of high-res looking platformer, cartoony platformer, I think was, for a lot of people who were picking up PlayStations, was, was a sort of obvious, obvious game to get. It's funny because Sony, by corporate policy, were actively trying to stop that kind of thing. That's they? so they true, yeah. Games on the system. And they let they they let certain games out at that point. So Worms did come out. Um, uh, Rapid Reload came out, or Gunner's Heaven, as it should be known. Um, and obviously the two D fighting games they allowed. So. Yeah, but overall, yes, they were famously like, no, this is a three D system. Um, but yeah, I, th- I suspect um, I suspect that did pretty well, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's. It, I don't think it plays, and I don't think it ever played as well as Castle of Illusion um, for me. Um, although maybe time will have been kinder to it. It's that much more recent, but yeah, it's an interesting. It's probably the easiest Mickey platform to get hold of from that era and that style of game. Yeah, I completed it on the Mega Drive, I believe, and again, not sure, this is entirely from memory. 
Uh, I believe the SNES version was slightly cut, not censored cut, but cut probably for space for some reason. Maybe the assets took up more room or maybe because Traveller's Tales were so absolutely um, brilliant at getting the most out of the Mega Drive, they didn't know how to reproduce some of the effects that they did on the SNES. So I think it's missing a couple of stages on the SNES. So if you're going back to play it, play the Mega Drive version. But, um, but yeah. Or the Mega CD version, which ah. uses... Because the Mega CD's yes. got sort of Mode Seven style effects as well, That's so true. you've kind of got the best of both worlds. You've got yeah, the I need a Mega SNES style of the 3D levels, and then uh, yeah, the tricks that they could use on the Mega Drive too. So I imagine really that the PS1 version. version features everything that the Mega CD version did. That would be my assumption, as it was a CD version. Yeah, I'd assume so. Um, for some reason, I'm imagining it wouldn't be quite the same, but I'm not quite sure why I'm saying that. <laughs> Again, it's probably just because of Traveller's Tales and their Mega Drive expertise. Yeah. Mm. Well, we haven't done the research on that one, but yeah, it's it's a worthwhile, it's definitely worthwhile checking out for fans of Disney and or 16-bit style platform games. Our one correspondent, bless him, Mr. Mike Leddy from the forum, just completed the trilogy. This is today, he posted, as we're recording. The total playthrough must have been around four hours, and it was well worth the revisit. Cast of Illusion was always a hard game for me. The fables of people completing it were as common as the myths of others completing Ghouls and Ghosts. I find that incredible. Ghouls and Ghosts is absolutely one of the hardest games ever made. Yeah. <laughs> just behind Super Ghouls and Ghosts and Ultimate Ghosts and Goblins. Um, but Cast of Illusion, I never had any problems with it. Um, but the time has really shown it to be much easier than expected. The music's still very pleasant, and the satisfaction of an extra life on completing level still much needed. Quackshot has always been the jewel of the collection for me. I'm glad to say it still stands up as the missing link between Metroid and Castlevania. That's high praise. Uh, it's amazing that Sega managed to develop this amazingly compact adventure with such a variety and charm. It's probably my favourite Indiana Jones game, and the box art is still awesome. World of Illusion was a game hugely anticipated in my social circles at the time, primarily for the multiplayer. And despite the step up in animation, it did, and still and still does, feel like the weakest in the series, with only a throwback to Cast of Illusion in the later levels stimulating any affection towards the title. Despite all three titles being extremely short, World of Illusion is just way too easy, lacking any sense of challenge, its brief playtime becomes more disappointingly obvious. No collection is perfect, but Sega really does deserve an applause for their creativity within the license. As a side note, this collection might have only taken a short time to complete, but I never remember anyone even remotely mentioning the brevity of them back in the day. While I do remember the World of Illusion conversation, when that one came out, people did say it was short, but interestingly, I watched a playthrough of that, a fast playthrough that was something like 28 minutes, which is actually... Uh, eight minutes longer than the playthrough of <laughs> Castle of Illusion I watched, so who knows? It, all this just makes me sad for Sega, who what they have turned into now. Well, they're, they're still an okay company, but you know, this is them firing all cylinders, in my opinion. Well, we know that some of the team who worked on these games are still there and making games like Valkyria Chronicles, so the, t the talent is still there and the great games are still there. They're just not as high profile and they come out less frequently I suppose is the thing but what we should do is embrace them when they do come out I guess when 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 those brilliant Sega people do still come up with a top game then buy it uh, like everyone did with Binary Domain right? <laughs> Actually that's a different team but anyway the point remains Our summaries then let's start with Darren Gargett yeah, very, very interesting one coming back to these kind of games. I say these kind of games, I mean like Mickey Mouse sort of, you know, licensed platformers because 
whenever I play a platform game of, you know, yesteryear, it's always the Mario games. They're just like a go-to. Yeah, I feel like playing an old platform, and let's play Mario. So coming back to Mickey Mouse was mm. an eye-opener, because these games, they are, they're, they're very they're very pleasant to play for again. Uh, the level design on the actual platform and for each of the games never really took me by storm, because they're, they're all sort of just like plodding along, you know, la da da, especially Quackshot. It's very just sort of waddling, literally waddling along yep. with, his, <laughs> with his squat ass. But yeah, the, the bits in between that sort of linked the levels together were quite exciting, especially in Quackshot with the, you know, the, the bit where you're clinging onto a bird in the sky and the, the zip line and the minecarts. All three of them are very enjoyable, but I must, I, in contrary to uh, Mike Leddy, I preferred World of Illusion to all of them, mainly because it sounds a bit sort of vain to say it, but they looked the best. It was more appealing on the eyes to play because of all the fancy effects they put in. That's not um, vanity, that's shallowness. <laughs> right. Well, we know Sorry. Darren, he's very, very shallow <laughs> indeed. Uh, so yeah, um, I, I, I do not regret playing these games at all, but um, I, I, you know, I, I did enjoy them. They, they were, for the most part, enjoyable games. They, they definitely had their downsides, like, like I said, the Dark Forest and Castle. God, I'm going to get confused again. But yeah, um, no, yeah, it's very worthwhile going back. And with all the talk of Mickey, like Mickey, Mickey Mania and power of illusion and stuff i'm i'm very interested to check out more sort of um mickey mouse games so to be honest I really am Epi mickey too yeah well it's a launch yeah. title for the wii u isn't it and rayman's mm. pulled out <laughs> he's still bitter he's slacked he's slacking so uh you know mickey mouse has got a bit more limelight on him now for Which sure fine rayman will be all the better when it arrives mm, definitely um, well, I, I'll go next. I, as I said, I didn't replay these for the show, but I feel I felt like I played them enough at the time to still remember kind of how playable or not they were. Um, I think that they, in in pure gameplay terms, you know, they it's, you can't deny that they have aged in some ways. They're definitely slower, more sedate, more basic, uh, ponderous than modern platformers. It, even in terms of the sort of the lack of feedback and reward that you get basically your reward is progress and your reward is seeing the next screen and the next baddie or the next enemy type the next next backdrop you're not getting multipliers i mean you know you're getting a score that's completely arbitrary uh but there's no sort of meta game here there's nothing to unlock there's no save system glorious isn't but it? it is sort of glorious it feels <laughs> yeah it feels very pure it's like just gaming for the sake of the game and the audio visual experience and i think despite these being 20 years old i think having watched through them again like i i know i have a propensity towards enjoying 16-bit art in particular um so you know bear this in mind but i think they do still look delightful and charming um the animation is brilliant. Some of the music's just wonderful. Um, they're atmospheric as well. You know, it's not its not just nostalgia. I still think they're just so well choreographed and designed that they are atmospheric. They do conjure up. They are evocative of the, of the feeling of the type of environment that you're supposed to be in at any time. Um, and generally, they're just adorable. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that people, you know, go and buy um, a... A Mega Drive and, and all these carts and play them again. Um, have a look at some of the best bits on on YouTube. Maybe if you do have an import enabled Saturn and you and you have a lot of cash, I would recommend adding Mickey and Donald to your collection uh, as as a as a brilliant thing to own as part of your Sega heritage for sure. Um, yeah, the, I I can't I can't extricate my nostalgia for these from my opinion of them. 
Um, and I'm not going to go and tell anyone to play them, but I am just going to express again that I think these are, this is a wonderful not trilogy of games. Tony, basically repeating everything everyone else has said. Um, looking at all three games as, as separate identities, I I don't think necessarily that uh, Illusion holds up as quite as well as my memory uh, remembers it. Castle. So, Castle. Yeah. Yes, Castle. I don't quite remember. Ah, bloody hell, now I'm off. I don't think Castle Illusion holds up quite as well as I remember it doing so back then, but yeah, that's 20 plus years, and, and so that's that. Um, Quackshot I found actually relatively frustrating um, out of the three. I, it was the one I've had the most challenge to get through, but then again, it's the one with the most game in it. Um, mm. So that was an odd, because for the first, you know, first bit I, I was really enjoying the fact that there was a bit more challenge to it but by the end I was just kind of like oh, I, I kind of want to see this through um, but you know it's, it's, it still looked relatively nice but yeah, that would be one I wouldn't say is necessary you would need to go back and play now but the the, t- the castle and especially for me world um, a bit like for Darren actually I, I think a lot of it is to do with the shallowness of the fact that it looks wonderful but I didn't I never really felt like any of these uh, this is certainly the, the, the two Mickey games uh, didn't feel like there were much of a challenge, and the uh, World of Illusion itself felt like it was um, more of this adventure. And I was going on this lovely, charming adventure with Mickey and Donald, and that won me over. And, and yeah, the, the sound effects are a little, little ropey for sure, but uh, they brought a huge smile to my face. So I'd say the the biggest thing for me here is this has the whole series has a lot of charm to it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I could recommend somebody going out and buying everything, but for for me, it was well worth putting the you know, the time in and playing all three. Um, but yeah, world. If I had to pick one, world is the one that uh, I I kind of fell in love with again. Uh, coming back to this you know, that many years later. Cool. And I'd uh, echo I'd echo what um what Darren and Tony have said that world is definitely my favourite. In fact, I go back and play it maybe every two three years. I do a Mickey playthrough and a Donald playthrough. Um, just because I enjoy, like you say, that Disney experience so much. I'm not sure if it is. It may be being shallow, and I'm just telling myself it's not the graphics, but I think just the overall experience has more um, more magic to it. It's more of that sort of a wander through a Disney World experience. Mm. Um, and I know you said you were disappointed with the Alice in Wonderland part, but, but hey, uh, Kingdom Hearts does that, and maybe it's like... I quite like the idea that it's a crossover through all these different disparate uh, Disney elements. Um, with, with Quackshot, I was quite disappointed at with it in the at the time and looking back I think I I wouldn't want to play it again quite so much so I'm going to disagree with with the correspondent but um but yeah castle still holds up still really like it as a game and yeah uh, I know you said you're not going to recommend them to people if they haven't played them I think that's what you said but um you can if if yeah, you if you haven't if you haven't played world uh I'd give that a go if you can find it as as you've said it's available quite readily and um, I think it's it's worth a, a try if you if you're into Disney, you have you owe it to yourself to play that. Three word reviews. We managed to get four in for this, which is not bad for a, a selection of twenty year old platformers. I feel. Hmm. Dante Fireseed says fuzzy, warm nostalgia. The Sonic Mole says dazzling Disney delights. Ryan Astley, he says retro Sega rocks. Snaky David, cherish childhood memories. Oh, you wanted to do your own. Yeah. Wham bam. Ah! 
Shazam! Oh, <laughs> he's a talented vocal mimic. Very good. Uh, so, the roundup. You can play along with Kane and Rince, Volume 2. Uh, I'll be having a week off now to rest my throat. And Tony will be your host for Syndicate, the 2012 incarnation, next week. After that, Half-Life 2, then Cave Story, then Binary... binary why do I always want to say Binary Domain? Then Pac-Man Championship Edition, or DX version, and some chat about the other one. With Sinan Cooper of Joystick, non-disgraced gaming journalist. Then back for more Half-Life with Half-Life 2, Episodes 1 and 2. Then Akami and Fantastic News. The HD release has been dated for 30th of October on PSN in the US. Praying and hoping and praying and hoping that uh, PlayStation Europe, Sony Europe, will get that out over here immediately, please. Thanks. I think, I think you're giving away your feelings on that game. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I've only ever played about 20 hours of it, so... I might hate the second half, but I don't care because it's beautiful. Uh, then Shenmue 1 and 2. I, I have a guest in mind for that, but I haven't approached them yet, so uh, we will see. Applejacks 1 and 2, hopefully with the creator of Applejacks 1 and 2, and Papo and Joe, hopefully with the creator of Papo and Joe. The month-by-month -month schedule can be found on the blog. The blog can be found at www.canerince.com. There you can find some quick reference videos, which can also be found on YouTube, which is on, obviously on YouTube. Uh, Twitter can be found at canerince, facebook.com forward slash canerince for our Facebook page. And you can send an email to us at canerince at gmail.com. We love to see and read your iTunes reviews, and we like it when you subscribe to the show and download every single one, even if you don't listen to them all or you don't listen to them at the time and save them for later. Why not? Uh, but most of all, we'd like you to join the Cane and Rinse community and join us on the forum at com slash forum. Just remains for me, Leon Cox, to thank Tony Atkins and Dara Gargett and our special guest, Dan Clark, from the AI Bots. I will link to their fine podcast website on the show notes. Until next time, with something far darker and more sinister, in Syndicate is some rather delightful, charming, lovable music. Goodbye.